Good morning, all. How are we? That was like a laid back good. It was like, good. All right. Well, I'll be good with you. I'm doing well also. Uh, just for, <clears throat> for all of our working folk in here today, um, who's ever had a bad day at work? Raise your hand. Bad day. All right, so true story. How many people, put your hands down, how many people would say every day I go to work is a bad day? Never mind, don't put your hands up. I want this to be positive, we'll get there eventually. I had a really, really bad day at work. When I used to work on airplanes, I had a really, really bad day at work. And uh, I I used to work on business jets, and I was in like a corporate flight department. You don't even know what that means, but it's a business that has jets. So there you go, corporate flight department. So uh, I'm, and, and I'm also a morning person. I'm the type of person that I need at least two cups of coffee before I can actually consider it a morning at all. So I need at least two cups, gallon-sized portions each. Um, and then I start to wake up and kind of break, the, the, break into the day. And this particular bad day at work, it was like, like 4.30 in the morning. So I had to get up, hour drive, like get up at 3.30, just like go in. And I'm the only one there. I'm the technician. I had to go prepare an airplane. I had to move other airplanes out of the way. And you move them all out of the way. And then you bring it out and you fuel it. And then you smile as if you've been up for eight hours. And then the pilots come in and, you know, do the deal. And, and the executives get on the plane and fly off into wherever. And so on this particular day, it didn't necessarily go as planned, um, as you can probably gather already. Um, I had moved one airplane out of the way. So far, so good. Everything's going great. I go to move the other airplane out of the way. Mind you, I had not had my coffee, and I absolutely was asleep. And I literally pushed that aircraft right into an ice machine. Now, just so we're clear, I checked the price of this airplane and the used cost of, of this type of airplane is still valued at $2 million, okay? So it's not a little fixer-upper, it's kind of a big deal. So I just creamed this wing into this ice machine, true story. It like started out like this at the end of the wing and ended up like that after I got done with it. It blew the whole thing up. I mean, it was horrible. I'm sitting down and I'm like, I I mean, what do you say in that instance? It's like, I'm looking at this, the plane, I was supposed to be getting prepared. Now I've got pilots coming in and they're scratching their head like, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. This thing ain't gonna fly. So then I literally, I'm like this and now they have me go prepare yet another airplane to fly out it looked exactly the same as the other one um the company had several of them and i'm like literally i'm like are you sure you want me to do this because this is not going well for me right now so i i do eventually get the plane and i and i send it out and then my boss comes in and all of my other co-workers and of course you know how this goes right you're with, you're with your co-workers and everybody's looking on and they're thinking that stinks to be you right now i mean it was kind of that reality And my boss is looking at me and like, what do you say? When you make a mess of that proportion, I'm sorry is just not enough. But that's all I could say. I'm sorry. This is going to cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm hoping it don't come out of my check because that's like all I'm going to make this year, then some. Like, what do you do when you make a mess of that proportion? Like when you're at work, I mean, worst case scenario, you get fired, right? And you go get another job and you know, maybe digging ditches and not work on an airplanes, but like you, you go get another job and you kind of move on with your life. But you see, sometimes we make messes of things in our marriage or with our kids 
that I'm sorry just isn't enough. Because sometimes we make a mess of things and the mess is so significant. Maybe sometimes the mess that we create is, is attached to words like divorce. And then you, you made a mess of things and now it's connected to a divorce. And yet now that person that you divorced is also connected to your child. So as much as you would just be like, okay, I'm washing my hands with you and the divorce is over and it's final, you can't because now that person is connected to a child and that's for the rest of your life. What do you do in that situation? I mean, that's a pretty epic mess, is it not? Sometimes we make a mess even of our kids and as parents, I mean, there's like no, there's like a million handbooks for kids, but none for your kid. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you want to learn how to be a great parent? Just read this book until you get under the walls of your home and you're like, this book's worthless. I have no idea what to do. And sometimes we even make a mess of our kids. Not that we try to, but it seems like we just don't know what to do and we fail our kids. And then we fail them when they're young and then they get to be teenagers and then the, the kind of distance happens between you and them and you're like, this mess is Huge. I don't even know what to do in this situation. You see, sometimes the mess finds us, and sometimes we make the mess. And that's actually what we see in the storyline that we're going to read today. But ultimately, the tension that that I, I want us to kind of set in and wrestle with is this. How can a person of promise come back from a mess that they created? I mean, how is it even possible I mean, what if it's like a really big mess? Is it possible to come back? The good news is yes. But the bad news is you can't do it alone. The good news is yes. The bad news is you can't do it alone. We're going to look at an individual today in Judges 16. If you have your Bible, please open it up to Judges 16. You can open up your Bible, a device, your phone. You're probably going to have to squint a little if it's on your phone, but... Rock it if you got it, and uh, if you don't have any of those things and you still want a Bible, there are actually some spread throughout the chairs probably in front of you. Tap somebody on the shoulder. I'm sure they're nice. They came with you, so I'm sure they're nice. And, uh, and grab one of those Bibles. And Judges is actually in the Old Testament. So if you start in Genesis, you're going to see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges 16. And we're going to look at, a, in a, at an individual's life who absolutely made a mess of nearly everything that he touched. He was a person who, when, when he was, even before he was brought into the world, he was told that he was going to have such promise. As a matter of fact, his mother was sterile and therefore childless, and then she heard that she was going to have uh, this, that she was going to have a child and that this child was to be raised as a Nazarite. And literally, I'll tell you what that means in just a moment, but a Nazarite literally means that he was set apart from God, even from birth. So his, his whole life, it was supposed to be rooted in just an incredible promise of God. But he makes a mess of things. He makes a mess of things. A Nazarite... <clears throat> Sometimes they call it a Nazarite vow. There are only three people in the Bible that we know actually who had the Nazarite, and none of them is named Jesus, just in case you're wondering there. It's a gentleman by the name of Samson, who we're going to look at today, Samuel, and then also John the Baptist from the New Testament. So to be a Nazarite, it meant certain things. It it meant that he couldn't cut his hair. 
Of course, if you know the storyline of Samson, you've been around the Bible, you know that, that his, his strength was actually connected to his beautiful locks of hair, right? So he, he couldn't cut his hair, and if you were a Nazarite, you couldn't cut your hair. People would literally look at you and, and be able to recognize that you're a Nazarite because you'd never cut your hair. And also, he had to stay away from dead things. That's easy enough. And he had to stay away from, uh, from alcohol, so he, of all types of alcohol. So if, you know, if there was any of that there, he couldn't be there. And then also, he had to only eat food that was considered clean. Now, because it was food that was considered clean, he couldn't have bacon. Like, think about it. You want to talk about testing someone's faith, just tell them no bacon. You know? So there was like no bacon wrap fillets, no bacon wrap scallops, no peppered bacon. It's like no thick bacon, none of that. You're getting hungry right now. There was none of that for him. His whole life was supposed to be set apart from God. But one, things you, the, one of the things that you see throughout his whole life, and this is literally just the storyline of the end of his life, his whole life was a roller coaster when he would start to take God for granted. And he would start to take his strength for granted. And he started to take everything about his upbringing for granted. And, and it seemed like, and, it, and this is the way that it happened, the Spirit of God would enter him, he would sin, the Spirit of God would leave him, the Spirit of God would enter him, and the Spirit of God would leave him. His whole purpose was to defeat the Philistines. He wasn't like some great spiritual leader who was going to bring about revival. Uh, it isn't like that was even his job. His job was literally to take out the Philistines because the Philistines were warring against the people of God at the time. You see this throughout the Old Testament. And so Samson, now you kind of know the backstory of his life and what he's supposed to do. So we're going to see what happens at the end of his life. And what we're going to see specifically is he has sexual desires that are out of control. Out of control. Totally out of control. We're going to see this starting in verse 1. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. There it is. He went in to, to spend the night with her, of course. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. Remember? Because they were enemies of Samson and the people of God. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Then you see a transition in verse 4. It says, Sometime later... He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we can tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. One of the things you don't know, because this is uh, before, uh, before chapter 16, Samson, much of his life, he like dabbled in the things that would be taboo for people of God. So he literally married a Philistine woman. He, he had gone against his parents' wishes, and sometimes parents, you can try and do all the things that you want, and yet your parent, and then your kids are still go rogue. 
And that's what happens with Samson. He, he is raised to be the warring leader against a warring people, and yet he goes and does the exact thing that God would not want him to do, and he marries a Philistine woman. So all of this is even before chapter 16. But then in verse 1, you see that now he, he first beds down with, the Phili- with a prostitute after he's already married to someone else. But that isn't enough. He's out of control. His whole life would be just, honestly, it would just be a way that he would just mock God's strength and God's purpose for his life. And he would reap the consequences as we're going to see in just a moment. But, but I want to share this with you. Some of us realize that not everybody in here is a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I just want to welcome you. I just want to say thanks for just kicking the tires on DBC. Um, my hope is that you would uh, give your life to Jesus. But, but if you're in the midst of, of, of that right now, I just want to welcome you. But I, I, one of the things I, I love about the Bible, and you see this in verse 1, it mentions the word Gaza. Gaza still uh, reference today, if you even pay attention to any sort of world geography in the Holy Land, Gaza is still a place in the West Bank of Israel today. And, and people in the West Bank are still the enemies of God's people. Still. So this is literally the same place, and that's where the Philistines lived. Now, another thing that I think is interesting, maybe you kind of nerd out on this stuff like I do, but literally, Palestine, maybe you've heard the word Palestinian, Palestine the, the, the Palestinians are enemies of God's people for the most part. And they live in and around Gaza. And Palestine literally means the land of the Philistines. Literally. So the Philistines, are, are they eventually all die off. But the people who are still in the area of Gaza are still the enemy of God's people. I love when the Bible just makes sense to what we can see even on TV, in, in everyday life. So in verse 4, we see the storyline open up with Samson and Delilah. And one of the things that we don't see, because I'm not going to read all of it, it's kind of lengthy, we see that literally Samson is now bedding down with Delilah. She lures him in. She has, uh, she has accepted a bribe from, from the Philistines to try and figure out where Samson's strength is coming from. So now... They're, just picture this, they're laying down and now she's trying to trick him into telling, telling her where the strength is coming from so she can later go tell Samson's greatest enemy. But he's out of control. His, 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 he has no sense of controlling the desires that are within him. He's out of control. His sensual desires, his sexual indulgences are out of of control they are the thing that is dominating his life up to right now so starting in verse 7 through verse 22 there's this this ebb and flow with samson and delilah going back and forth she eventually tricks him into telling her what or where his strength is coming from and in just a stupor she cuts his hair therefore his strength leaves him which is leaving him then powerless. And after he is powerless, his eyes are gouged out. Imagine this. His whole life, he, he was raised as a Nazarite, set apart for God. All Christians, by the way, are supposed to be living lives that are set apart for God. 
Not in the same way, but we're to be set apart for God. And now, his life starts in a certain way, but he absolutely makes a mess of it. So he finds himself. With the Spirit of God has left him, he is now powerless. He has no strength within his own being, and now he's blind. And all of that is the consequence of of his disobedience. Because when you dabble in sin, you dabble in the consequences. Desire, left unchecked, will make you do the unthinkable, but it does not mean that it is irredeemable. Desire, when it's left unchecked, it will make you do the unthinkable. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I became this kind of father. I never wanted to be the dad who raised me. And yet, if you have desire that's left unchecked, then all of a sudden, you are that dad. And maybe the reason why is because you have the desire that's left unchecked. Perhaps you try to control it yourself. The only way that we can tame, tame, not, not kill, we're not trying to kill desire, but tame the power of desire is by admitting that you're powerless to control it. The only way that you can tame the power of desire is by admitting that you are powerless to control it. This, this could be the moment that you stop trying to will yourself into fixing your own messes and you start to look up at God and you start to realize that the mess that is surrounding your life because it is, is largely because maybe something that you've done. And yet you realize that although you created the mess, you can't clean it up yourself and you're powerless to. And that could be the very moment that your life starts to change. That could be the very moment to where things start to make sense to you. That could be the very moment. I want this to be the moment for you. If you've not had this moment, this could be the moment where you start to, you start to understand why you do the things that you do and why you say the things that you say and why you respond in the way that you do. One of the things that is challenging about Samson's life is something we're going to see particularly in verse 28. So I just told you that now he's, he himself is no, has no strength. His hair's been cut. He's been duped by Delilah and basically turned over to the Philistines, his greatest rival. Let's see what happens in verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled in order or excuse me, assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. They thought they had won. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, uh, i.e., they had tied one on, while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. They're mocking him. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. While they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. 
Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers and the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Our sovereign Lord, pay close attention to this prayer. Our sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Verse 29, then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple, the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. There's some things that are troubling about this because um, obviously you see that Samson's purpose was to war against the Philistines, and this is unsettling to me um, because I look at this and I'm like, okay, that was Samson's purpose and, and all of that, and yet uh, I, I look at particularly at the end of verse 28. Look at it if you have a Bible or access to um, the truth. And it says, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. So is this Samson recovering his purpose, the reason why he was made, or is this revenge? And the answer is yes, it's both. It's both. Now, let's go to the beginning of this prayer. Notice he's praying. So he now realizes that he's powerless to change his own situation. Now he's, he starts to where he, he, he perhaps, we don't know this for sure, I'm kind of thinking into the situation, that he's starting to understand the mess that he's created. And he looks up and he prays and he prays this, Lord, O sovereign Lord. So he's, he's addressing God now and he says sovereign. And that word sovereign, it, when it's used in this way, he's showing that he's submitting to God. So he himself submitted to no one except his out-of-control desires. Now he's submitting to God, and he's recovering the purpose of which he was made. If you're still unsettled with this, you're still confused by this. I'm going to help you be more confused. Hebrews eleven thirty-two says this, And what more shall I say? This is from the Hall of Faith. This uh, is just kind of what man calls this section of the Bible because it talks about a lot of the heroes of the faith, specifically from the Old Testament. And it says, and, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak. What's the next word? Samson, right? So he's on the list. And David and Samuel and the prophets. So now his life is being referenced in a positive way. And for me, I think, and there's, there's differing opinions on this, but I believe, in accordance with my study, the reason why he would even be added to this list is not because of, of the people that, that he had killed, not because of all of that. It's because even at the, the last part of his life, he surrendered himself to God. He, he, he showed at least the beginning of repentance, at least the beginning of repentance. I, I think a summary statement of, of his life could be summed up with this. Your life doesn't have to be defined by what you did to you. Last week we talked about 
really what some of the things that people have done to us and how how we can recover from maybe a circumstance that we didn't bring on ourselves. but it's clear from Samson's life he brought this on himself by having out-of-control desires. But I want us to see this morning that, that your life doesn't have to be defined by what you did to you. But understand, every Christian, please understand this, the stakes are high. The stakes are high for your life. And that we are in the middle of a great battle. So even though this is true, and I believe this is true, this is biblically consistent, but understand that we are still in the middle of a great battle, which means that that you may have given your life to Christ and you could have a salvation that's rooted in the cross of Christ, but you could still not be living the abundant life that Christ Jesus offers. And the stakes are high. And it's a great battle. And we have to fight. We can't, we can't just accept the salvation that God offers us and just kind of turn our life over and do whatever it is that we want to do and become the rugged individualist that we talked about last week. We can't do that. We have to continue to understand that we are in the middle of a great spiritual battle. This is what A.W. Tozer said of this battle. He said, so it becomes the devil's business to keep the Christian spirit imprisoned. He knows that the believing and justified Christian has been raised up out of the grave of his sins or her sins. From that point on, Satan looks, listen closely, please. Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged, actually imprisoned in our own grave clothes. He knows that if we continue in this kind of bondage, we're not much better off than when we were spiritually dead. The stakes are high to reclaim the messes even that you and I have created. And it is a battle that we have to engage in. But the beautiful thing of the gospel is, by engaging in this spiritual battle, we are not fighting alone. What we see was so problematic in Samson's life is he started to take the strength that God gave him for granted. So much so that not only did he take that strength for granted, and he would walk around and he would flaunt that strength, and he was very arrogant with it. But then he started to take his relationship with God for granted also. You see, today we're, getting it, 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 we're going to get to the why, the root of desire. That's what I want us to see. We're going to get to the root of desire. Why is it that we do the things that we do? You see, we don't really see this necessarily from Samson's life. We just kind of see the beginning of repentance at the end of his life. But one thing we don't see is we don't see that he ever figures out why he does the things that he does. And maybe for you, maybe you, you're addicted to a substance and now I believe that there's not just recovery, but I believe that, that you wouldn't just live in a world of recovery, but I believe there's healing from addiction. But in order for you to have healing from that addiction, you have to go to the root of desire. Why do I desire that relationship? Why do I, have, why do I resire, desire that pill? Why do I desire that substance? Why do I desire chocolate as much as I do? Why is my life out of control? But if you don't get to the point of desire, you will always wrestle with those besetting sins and you will never fully become who it is that God wants you to be. And what will happen is you'll settle for working out 
things under your own will and your own strength. But let me just caution you. Try harder Christianity, what I call white-knuckle Christianity, won't change you. Blaming someone else for the mess that surrounds your life won't change you. Thinking or believing that changing is impossible is a lie, and it's a trap. Simply changing friends won't change you. It won't change you. You can remove yourself from a situation, but if the problem is at the, at the, at the point of your desire, that issue, that mess is going to follow you no matter where you go. And then every time you get around a circle of friends, if you have not asked God to kind of speak into you and allow God to wrestle with the why of your desire, you are going to bring that mess with you and you're going to bring that mess into every relationship. Everyone. So simply changing friends won't work. I want to share... A passage with you. I'm just going to read it. You can write down the source. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to go through it fast. But this is the reason why legalism doesn't work. This is the reason why man-made rules has never added up to true, lasting change. Colossians 2, verse 20 since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? That's what legalism is. It's just a bunch of rules. Here's a couple examples. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. That's what legalism is. It's human rules under the spiritual covering. Verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But, listen to this, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any Value in restraining sensual indulgence. Sounds like desire, doesn't it? It's the reason why legalism doesn't work to change you either. I know some of us have unfortunately been kind of swept up in that. Maybe that's part of your faith story and you've been kind of kicking and screaming and clawing out of that. Maybe you even, because of that, you start to see legalism kind of still rev up in you where you have to start to think that you, that you have to kind of perform to make God love you. The cross of Jesus, the one that Jesus Christ died on, says that he loves you. What he did on that cross says that he loves you. It's not a matter of you performing to attain the love of God. One of the things I think that is so awesome about this is we do have a way to change. We do. But as long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will make the evil in us stronger than ever. 
As long as, as we think that we can save ourselves and I can do this, I can handle this. I don't need anyone. I don't need people. I don't need a community of faith. I don't even need God. I can do this. I totally believe what Heine Arnold's quote says. It's on the screen right now. As long as you think you can save our, yourself or ourselves by our own willpower, we only make the evil in us stronger than ever. It just becomes more hardened and more falsely convinced that it can offer satisfaction for our soul and change. But it can't. And the moment we think that we can succeed and attain victory over our sin by the strength of our will alone is the moment that we're worshiping the will itself. See, that's what happens. Because if we don't invite, listen to me, listen to me. If we don't allow God, we don't ask God to come into our life and get to the, to the point of desire, we're going to settle with white-knuckle Christianity, legalism, or any other term that, that you think of when it comes to man-made rules, and we're just going to settle for doing those things, and it only makes the evil in us worse And the moment that we think that we can succeed by those, we're actually worshiping our will itself and not God. And it's a trap. It's a trap. It links us in and it defeats us. Gives us a false sense of victory while it ensures our defeat. If you have a Bible also, please go to Matthew 6. We're going to end right here. And, and we're going to look at the model prayer that Jesus prayed in Matthew 6. And, and I know some faith groups, they've honestly kind of made a mess of this, this prayer. And they think this is the only prayer you can pray. And that's not, um, not even true. That's not even consistent with what Jesus um, even meant with this. But what I want us to do is look at not necessarily some superstition in these words, but I want us to look at the truth behind these words. And I believe once we get to verse 13, you're going to see the pathway, um, the pathway basically to see lasting change in your life, to see lasting change and to experience lasting change. The pathway is by inviting God in to test our desires. This is what the the passage says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. That's what that means. So this this is a, a prayer for Christians. If you're not a Christian, this, honestly, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, right now, you're actually not a child of God. You're not. So this particularly addresses children of God. People have committed their life to Jesus. People have said yes to the salvation that is offered because of the work of the cross. And then we can go before our Heavenly Father and we can say, our Father in Heaven, because we're children of God. We can say, our Father in Heaven, holy be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.
See, verse 9. I want you to, to see that this is a personal address to, to your Heavenly Father who loves you. Christian, this is an address to your Heavenly Father who loves you. But it doesn't just stop there. This, it begins here, and it says, Holy be your name. The kingdom of God will not be evident in a person's life unless God's name is made holy in that life. It's not. The kingdom of God will not be made evident in a person's life unless they first have made God's name holy. It's right here. And it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. So what, if Samson were praying this, if you were to pray this, what, are you, what would you be saying? You'd be saying, you know what? God, your will be done, not my will. I'm surrendering my will to your will. It's an invitation. That's really what prayer is. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. So he says, our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, in my life as it is in heaven. That's an invitation. That's an address to God, Almighty God, saying, I am powerless to change myself. Please change me. I'm powerless to change myself. I don't know why I do the things that I do. I don't know why I chase that woman. I don't know why I chase that man when everybody else tells me not to, but I just feel like I just have to go that way, and I don't know why. I don't know why everywhere I go in my life, my life just turns out to be a mess. It's because you haven't, Pray to prayer like this in belief of saying, Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. That's why. Because you're still wrestling with trying to do things by your will. And you won't see change. Verse 11 says, And give us today our daily bread. Just be enough for my today. Just be enough for my today. God, give me, give me the grace for today. Give me the mercy for today. Lamentations 3 says that, that the mercies of God are new every morning. Just, just show me that you're enough today. But it doesn't stop. Forgive us our debts. Going to God saying, God, forgive me of my sins. I can't, I've made a mess of things. My desires have gone out of control. I've tried to do it all myself. I've tried to white knuckle it. I've tried to use my own strength and my own will, and I cannot do it. Asking for forgiveness, but also, and as we also have forgiven our debtors, so because of the forgiveness that God gives to you now. We ask God, God, give us the strength to forgive others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Like that's, that's what I want for us. That's what I want for us. But it's a battle. It's not something we can just take for granted. 
It's a battle, it's a struggle, it's a continual surrender to Almighty God. Say, God, I cannot do this myself. I cannot be the satisfaction for my own soul. I cannot change myself. And when we start to get to that point, and then we, we begin to look up at God, and then we ask for help, it's in that moment change is possible. It's in that moment change is possible. Then, we can go to our Heavenly Father. Say, our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life as it is in Heaven. In my life. See, I know that this, this is heavy, and I know that some, some folks, I just, I just know this to be true, some folks come in here just to feel good. And to have somebody stand on the stage and pat you on the back and say, man, life's going awesome. You're awesome. Everything about you is awesome. Your relationships are awesome. Your future is awesome. Your past is awesome. Your present is awesome. And I, and I realize that. And I realize that when I start talking about change, some of you don't want to change. I'll be honest with you. Some of you don't. Some of you are actually afraid of change. You're afraid of, of admitting that maybe part of the mess of your life is, is your own doing because it may uncover some other dark things that you just simply don't want to see about yourself. I get it. I get it. But what I also get is God's grace is there to meet you in that moment. And God's grace is enough. Because God loves you. He doesn't want you to just be set in your sin. He doesn't just want you to reap the whirlwind of the consequence of your sin. He longs for you. Jesus died for you. When Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That was before he went to the cross before he would then become the satisfaction of your sins and my sins before the blood would would just just roll down his body and drip onto the ground for you and for me his grace is sufficient it was sufficient in that moment and it is sufficient in this one so although it's scary although the 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 mess is unavoidable although it, it's going to take some work I just want you to know as I finish this talk God's grace is sufficient you just need to maybe in your life surrender your will and look up and just pray the honest prayer our God in heaven Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. And we press on and we ask God, say, God, lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And what we'll do is we allow God to put a spotlight on the desire, a spotlight on the why, and we allow his grace and his love to fix it but we unlock that when we look up